In our rebellion, we put Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to death. Now our lives are forfeit. But here we see the wonder of God's adopting grace, that it turns rebels into princes. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we become God's own sons and daughters. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We continue today with the message, All God's Children. We'll see what it is to be adopted by God and what entitlements and responsibilities that privilege brings. Well, Phil, today's message is about the doctrine of adoption. Now, my own father was adopted, my daughter was adopted, and if I'm not mistaken, your grandfather was adopted as well. Yes, he was, Mark, and since you've experienced it in your own family, you know some of the wonderful blessings that come through adoption and how much we learn about the grace of God for us. You know, my grandfather is 90 years old now, in his 90s actually, and to this day, he will testify that one of the greatest blessings in his life and one of the things that has taught him the most about God is the fact that as just a little baby, he was adopted into a family that loved him and raised him in love. And what a wonderful testimony that is to God's love in his life. Indeed. Well, today we're going to meet someone from the Bible who was adopted. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Well, let me start with his name, Mark, because it's a little difficult. The name is Mephibosheth, and he was a grandson of King Saul. He had a lot of things going against him in life, as we'll hear in the story today. He was crippled. He was a rival potentially to the king, and therefore he might have expected even to be killed. But because of the amazing grace of King David, he was brought into the king's own household to live like a prince. And this whole story testifies to us of the blessings that God has for us by adopting us into his royal family. Thank you, Phil. Turn in your Bible to Second Samuel chapter 9, and let's hear God's word for us today. A few weeks ago, the men in our family went out for breakfast and also met for prayer. As we shared our joys and also our burdens, my grandfather testified to the great blessing that he had received from earliest days by being adopted into a loving Christian family. He described his adoption as his life's greatest blessing, because later it helped him understand what it meant to be a child of God by adoption. And really, he viewed his whole life as nothing less than the unfolding of God's adopting grace. As he spoke, it seemed that he had really penetrated to the very essence of what it means to be a child of God. Adoption is essential to the message of salvation, salvation by grace through faith. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, writes J.I. Packer, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Now, the place to begin grasping the biblical doctrine of adoption is with the word itself, adoption, which refers very specifically to the legal act by which God declares a believer to be his own son or daughter. The term 
Adoption properly appears only in the writings of Paul, who seems to have borrowed it from the Roman legal system. And the imperial practice of adoption suited the apostles' purposes well, for it illustrated many different aspects of the Christian's relationship to God. This is how the Scottish legal scholar Francis Lyle explained Roman adoption and its connection with the message of salvation. He wrote, the adoptee is taken out of his previous state and is placed in a new relationship with his new family. All his old debts are canceled, and in effect, he starts a new life. From that time, his new father owns all the property and acquisitions of the adoptee and controls his personal relationships and has rights of discipline. On the other hand, the father is involved in liability by the actions of the adoptee, and owes him reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. Christian doctrines of election, justification, and sanctification imply that the believer is taken out of his former state and is placed in a new relationship with God. He is made part of God's family forever with reciprocal duties and rights. All his time, property, and energy should from that time forth be brought under God's control. Now, while the terminology for this kind of adoption may come from the Romans, the doctrine of adoption really begins with the Jews. As far as we know, the Jews did not have a procedure for adoption. It comes as something of a surprise to learn that the only three examples of adoption in the Old Testament all took place outside of Israel. Yet the Old Testament does have a great deal to say about what it means to be God's child. Remember that one of the great privileges of the children of Israel was that they were the children of God. Thus, adoption is part of this whole biblical theme of sonship. One story that illustrates many features of biblical sonship is the story of Mephibosheth. We have it for us in 2 Samuel 9. You might also want to turn there. Although this story comes from the Old Testament, although it doesn't even use the term adoption, nevertheless it shows what it means to be treated as a child of God the great King. Now the story begins in tragedy with two great military heroes, Saul and Jonathan, bleeding and dying on a field of battle. Saul was Israel's anointed king, Jonathan, his princely son, Together they fought to defend Israel against the Philistines. And yet God had rejected Saul as king, and the two men were slain in battle with their bodies fastened to the walls of Beit Shan. This defeat was especially tragic for a little boy named Mephibosheth, who was Jonathan's son and therefore Saul's grandson. And since he was Too small to ride into battle, Mephibosheth was back home when the royal court heard that the king and the prince were dead. In their rush to flee from the Philistines, Mephibosheth fell from his nurse's arms, and he was crippled for life. So Mephibosheth had several things going against him. To begin with, he was lame. For the rest of his life, he would be defined by this deformity. Whenever he is mentioned in the Bible, reference is always made to his disability, which was severe, of course, because it affected both of his feet. Mephibosheth would never be able to walk. Thus, it seemed that he would never be able to earn a steady income. Furthermore, he was an orphan. 
When Saul and Jonathan died at the hands of the Philistines, it meant that he had to grow up without a father. And then Mephibosheth had this other great disadvantage, which in a way was the most serious of all. Remember that he was a grandson of King Saul, Israel's first king. And that made him a potential rival to David's throne. Remember that God anointed David to serve as Saul's successor. And yet there were some in Israel who thought that one of Saul's sons should remain on the throne. Thus there was war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And so Mephibosheth was not only a cripple and an orphan, but as far as King David was concerned, he was also a rebel. Now in those days it was customary for kings to put their rivals to death, which is precisely what happened to Mephibosheth's uncle, a man named Ishbosheth, Saul's oldest son. With the death of Ishbosheth, the house of Saul was defeated, and David reigned as king over Israel. And meanwhile, Mephibosheth, at least it seems this way, went into hiding. And when the story resumes, some years later, he is living in Galilee, far from the city of David. Given all the bad blood between David and Saul, the last place Mephibosheth wanted to be was in Jerusalem. And so we may imagine his surprise when he finds himself unexpectedly summoned to appear before King David. Notice his words in 2 Samuel 9, verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth seemed to have thought that he was a dead man. He knew that as a member of a rebellious house, his life was forfeit to the crown. And yet he had nothing to fear as the king reassured him. Not only did David intend to spare his life, but he also wanted to treat the orphan like his own dear son. What Mephibosheth received was nothing less than the grace of adoption. Not only was he granted a royal pardon, but by being given a place at the king's own table, he practically became a member of the royal family. And you see, our own situation is not far different from this. For we were born into a rebellious house. As the sons and daughters of Adam, we were born at war with the house of God's Son. The Bible calls us God's enemies. It identifies us as children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, even as the children of the devil, 1 John chapter 3. And in our rebellion, we put Jesus Christ, the son of David, to death. And now our lives are forfeit. And here we see the wonder of God's adopting grace, that it turns rebels into princes, That through faith in Christ, we have become God's own sons and daughters. And so it is that in his classic treatment of this subject, that the southern theologian John Girardot defines adoption as an act of God's free grace, whereby for the sake of Christ, he formally translates the regenerate from the family of Satan into his own family and legally confirms them in all the rights, all the immunities, and all the privileges of his children. Sonship is a personal relationship between a loving father and a devoted child. The basis for that relationship is a legal act, the legal act of adoption. 
Now, in the case of Mephibosheth, there was no formal adoption, for this was not the Jewish custom. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth's filial relationship to David had a proper legal basis. It was based on a covenant between David and Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Now, to understand this covenant, it helps to know a little family history. David and Jonathan were the best of friends. What made their relationship unusual was the fact that they ought to have been mortal enemies. As the son of King Saul, Jonathan was the reigning prince. However, David had been anointed to begin a new dynasty. Therefore, by all rights, the two young men ought to have been at war. Indeed, there were many occasions when King Saul tried to take David's life. And yet, despite his father's animosity, Jonathan remained David's most steadfast friend. David and Jonathan sealed their relationship with a special promise. When it became apparent that David was no longer safe at the royal palace, the two men began to plan for David's departure. Jonathan begged David, this is 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan begged David, show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. and Do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. That was a promise that David was willing to make, and so Jonathan made a covenant, and he had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. When the two men made their last farewells, it was uncertain whether they would ever see one another alive again. And so after they had embraced, Jonathan reminded David of their covenant. He said, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. David never forgot that covenant promise, and it was on the basis of that promise that he brought Mephibosheth to his palace. That's how 2 Samuel chapter 9 begins with David asking, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? What David extended to Mephibosheth was a kind of covenant adoption. He had sworn friendship to Jonathan's descendants forever, and by welcoming Jonathan's son into his own home, he proved that he was faithful to his covenant. And since we find in this story an illustration of saving adoption, this raises a question. What is the basis for our adoption in Jesus Christ? Clearly it is a legal adoption, The Greek term for adoption refers to proper adoption under the Roman law. And so what is the legal basis for our becoming the sons and daughters of God? According to the Bible, adoption is based on predestination. This is what we have in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. The Scripture assures us that in love, God predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, our adoption goes all the way back before the beginning of time. Our status as sons and daughters of God is part of the eternal covenant. We were predestined to be adopted. And if adoption is part of the eternal covenant, then it must be a demonstration of divine love. For the covenant is God's love promise. This is what the Scripture means when it says that In love, He predestined us to be adopted. Adopting grace is the proof of the Father's undying love for dying sinners. 
You know, there are few things more precious than a father's love for his adopted child. One woman experienced this love when she and her husband adopted their first child. The couple traveled from America to Korea to arrange the adoption. When they arrived in Seoul, they discovered that the little girl they hoped to adopt was in the hospital with pneumonia. Anxiously, they went to see her. This is how the prospective mother described their experience. As we rushed those last few steps toward our little girl, it seemed the world shifted into super slow motion. She was lying in her bed, a fragile little bundle of life, just over four pounds, recovering from pneumonia. So beautiful, but so tiny and helpless. And Tim and I both began to cry. And Tim, who had never been comfortable around babies, immediately reached into the crib and swooped up Stephanie. He rocked her ever so gently in his arms. And the two of them bonded in that instant. I kept weeping as I observed an incredible look of love and devotion, such as I had never before seen on my husband's face. And you see, that couple's story is an illustration of God's adopting love in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. It shows that our salvation flows from the heart of the Father's love. This is the message of salvation, that we are predestined to be adopted as God's sons and daughters. Now, adoption's greatest joy is to know a father's love. But adoptive children also enjoy many other privileges, as Mephibosheth came to appreciate. First, he was given the status of a son, the status of a son. Though David did not formally adopt Mephibosheth, he granted him the same status as his own sons. And the king signified this by inviting the orphan to eat at his royal table. This high privilege must have been highly unusual, for the Bible mentions it no less than four times in the space of seven verses. Mephibosheth himself could hardly believe it. As he later marveled, this is Second Samuel chapter 19, all my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. By giving Mephibosheth a place at the table, David was treating him virtually as a family member. The Bible calls attention to this point by saying, as it does at the end of verse 11, that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Second, Mephibosheth was granted a royal inheritance. He had not only the status of a son, but also the promise of an inheritance. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather. Now realize that Mephibosheth had no right to claim this land for his own. Well, true, it had originally belonged to his grandfather, Saul, but it became David's property when he ascended to the throne. The only way for Mephibosheth to come into possession of that land was to receive it as a legacy from David. Mephibosheth was granted this royal inheritance. And then, in the third place, he received good fatherly care. A good father is sensitive to the needs of his children. Mephibosheth obviously had special needs. 
David was sensitive enough not only to recognize them, but also to meet them. And you heard how it was that the king summoned Ziba, the servant of Saul, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Now this man, Ziba, had 15 sons and 20 servants, which gives perhaps some idea how wealthy Mephibosheth became. He inherited a large farming operation, and yet without these dozens of men to manage it, it would have done him little good. Because of his disability, he was unable to farm the land. You see, David anticipated this and made practical arrangements to meet Mephibosheth's needs, and all of which showed his real fatherly compassion. Now, admittedly, Mephibosheth was never formally adopted, and yet he was granted many of the benefits of adoption. He was given a sonly status. He received a rich inheritance. He was lavished with good fatherly care. And thus his story illustrates what the Bible means when it speaks of the full rights of sons. It's an expression which comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. It refers to the high privilege that we have through our adoption in Christ. We have received the full rights of sons. It is for this reason that the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines adoption as an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And so what are these privileges? What are the privileges of our spiritual sonship? What are these full rights of sons? Well, they are the same ones that Mephibosheth received. First of all, the status of sonship. In adoption, we become God's true sons and daughters. To all who received him, this is John chapter 1 at the 12th verse, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And you see, saving adoption is not simply a sort of metaphor for salvation. It is a legal reality. It is something God has decreed in the courts of heaven. And notice the way that we obtain this saving adoption. It's the same way that we receive all the blessings of salvation. We receive it by trusting in Jesus Christ. The only ones who have the right to become God's children are those who believe in Christ's name. As Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Thus, adoption is only for those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only for those who are united to Him by faith. You are all sons of God, the Scripture says, through faith in Christ Jesus. This sonship, this high privilege of becoming a child of God, is only for those who come to the Father by believing in the Son. Once we are adopted by grace through this faith, God accepts us as His own beloved children. The story is told of a little girl who felt very unloved. Perhaps I have told this story before, I can't remember. The little girl was born... Disfigured. In fact, her face was so ugly that even her own parents were repulsed by her appearance. As you might imagine, the little girl had very few friends. The only person who seemed really to care for her was her school teacher, 
One day the teacher said something so wonderful that really it changed the whole rest of the little girl's life. The children were being tested for their hearing. And in turn, each child would walk up to the teacher's desk and she would lean over and whisper something into the child's ear and then ask the child to repeat it. When this poor little girl stood by the teacher's desk, she heard her whisper very quietly, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. You see, what God whispers into the believer's ear is even more wonderful than that. He says, you are my little girl. You are my beloved son. And you see, God's desire to make us his children is not an idle wish. It is a legal fact. In his heavenly court, he has decreed that we are his sons and daughters through faith in Christ. And in keeping with this new status, we have been given a new name as adoptive children often are. Now we are called children of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Yes, that is what we are. And it is the highest status we will ever attain. We are princes and princesses, for our Father is the great King. And since our Father is the great King, we can expect to receive a royal inheritance. This promised inheritance, which you may remember, is the second benefit of our sonship. First, our status as sons and daughters. Then, our promised inheritance. This inheritance is often mentioned when the New Testament speaks of adoption. Now, if we are children, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Or again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The Bible gives us a clue what that inheritance might include when it calls us co-heirs with Christ. It's a way of saying that we will inherit virtually everything that Christ has inherited. We will inherit God's kingdom with all its riches. We will inherit heaven with all its splendors. We will inherit new resurrection bodies like the resurrection body of Christ in all its glory. Scripture says that we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are still waiting to receive the full benefits of our adoption, which we will only receive when we are raised in glory. Thus we may say that we have a once and a future adoption, a sonship that spans eternity. We were adopted in Christ before the beginning of time, and we will remain God's sons and daughters forever. And in the meantime, we have this third privilege of our adoption, and that is we have God's fatherly care. You know, God is the best of fathers. And he proves his love for his children by lavishing us with all of the gifts of his providence. Even earthly fathers, as sinful as we are, know how to give good gifts to our children. 
And how much more then does our Father in heaven know how to take care of all of our needs? He gives us our bread for each day. He gives us the forgiveness of our debts. He gives us deliverance from the evil one. He gives us everything we need when we pray to Him as Father. And in a way, we may say that we have a right to these things because we have received the grace of adoption. Now, adoptive sons and daughters have many rights, but they also have some responsibilities. And their main responsibility is simply this, to respond to their father with loving obedience. This is the responsibility of a son or a daughter, to respond to your father with loving obedience. Mephibosheth seems to have done this. At the end of the passage, we encounter one small but very important detail. It's in verse 13. Scripture says that Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And this fact that Mephibosheth always ate at the king's table means that he took David up on his offer. He accepted his sonly status. He claimed his royal inheritance. He received David's fatherly care. And what God wants from His children, what God wants from us, is the same kind of devotion, the same kind of loving obedience. He wants us to know Him and to trust Him as our Father. He is waiting to hear the word that every father longs to hear from the lips of his children. He is waiting to hear the word, Father. And in order to help his sons and daughters call Him by name in this way, He has given us the gift of His Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, the Scripture says, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit of the Son who enables us to call out to God as Father. I am reminded of a little orphan boy who was rescued from the streets of Brazil by a family of missionaries. I received his story in a letter not many months ago. When the boy turned 10, the family decided to adopt him. Once they had explained that the judge had given him a new birth certificate with a new name, the boy couldn't wait to tell his friends among the street children of that city. Uncle, he said, when do I get to tell my friends that you are my dad? As soon as you want, his father replied. But how will they believe you if you don't stop calling me uncle? You see, to enter into the joy of God's family, we must learn to call God Father. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to do this. He convinces us that we are the sons and daughters of God. He assures us of our sonship by enabling us to call God Father. In so many ways, this is the secret of the Christian life. We do not serve God in slavish fear, hoping somehow to earn our way into His favor. No, we are not slaves. We are sons and daughters since God is the perfect Father, we know that we will never be disinherited. And this makes us free to serve Him with the joyful obedience of children who are eager to please their Father. Is this the way that you live the Christian life? Do you know God in this way? Do you know Him as Father? Are you able to call Him Father? Have you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? This paper which I hold in my hand is a legal document. 
It's a document issued by the Court of Common Pleas of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, Orphans Court Division. It's the final adoption decree for a child adopted by a family from this church. The document begins with the name of the child to be adopted, and then it lists the findings of the court, that the court has jurisdiction, that the needs and welfare of the adoptee will be promoted by adoption, that it is in the adoptee's best interest that the court approve the adoption, and so on. Once it made these findings, the court ordered and decreed the following. First, that request for adoption is hereby approved. Second, that said adoptee shall have all the rights of a child and heir of the adopting parents and shall be subject to duties of such child. And third, that said adoptee shall be hereafter known as, and then the child's new name is given. As you listen to that adoption decree, you can see that it contains nearly all the features of the kind of adoption that God offers. If you are not yet a child of God, what I have tried to do is to describe the terms of adoption. But I tell you that it is in your very best interest to become a child of God through faith in Christ. But I tell you further that your adoption is waiting to be approved. That God is ready and willing to grant you all the rights of his sons and daughters with the promise of a royal inheritance. All the papers are in order. The only thing missing is your acceptance. And in order to give your acceptance, the only thing you need to do is to believe in Jesus Christ, telling God that you are ready to become his own dear child. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the grace of adoption. We pray that you might apply it to our hearts, that by your Spirit we may come to know more and more deeply the grace that we have through being declared your sons and daughters through faith in Christ. And we pray for that grace which we also need to live in loving and joyful obedience, in keeping with the great love that we have received from you as our Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. 
Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.